I know you, you've seen this movie a lot, haven't you, Pete? Yeah, I used, it was one of the random movies I owned in college. I watched a bunch, um, and I've rewatched it once, maybe in the last few years. Really fun to watch it fresh, and to, oh my god, <laughs> it's it's so good. It's so good. Yeah, I was saying, I was talking with, uh, so Steve is on another podcast, uh, The Intervention. And I was talking with Levi earlier today, and we were talking about like this being like, you know, which are the greatest sort of satire films of all time. And a list I saw said this was the number one, like most, the best satirical movie of all time. I think it had a couple, what was the other one? A Charlie Chaplin movie, I think, was on there as well. It's like another top tier. Oh, no, maybe it's the. Uh, it's just the called a dictator, one. isn't it? Sit back in your seats, get something to eat. Watch this movie. Don't let the kids see it. Because, well, let, let, we'll let you hear the video. Uh, thank you. All right, this evening on Left of the Projector, we are talking about the Stanley Kubrick film, Dr. Strange Love, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. And with me, I have Steve from the Intervention Podcast and uh, Pete, who I've known for, from no podcast, but I've known for quite some time. First, uh, no, second podcast, second podcast. Second podcast. Well, thank you both for joining. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, no, Pete, you were saying this is like a, a movie you like think back to as just a a great movie. Like, what do you think? What, what, like, in your mind makes this movie so good? I, I'm a huge Kubrick fan. I think all his work's amazing, but this is obviously special. You're talking about, I would say, great satire. It's absolutely acidic. It is so burning and correct and accurate. Incredibly relevant right now. I think my favorite part of revisiting it was seeing it in the context of like, the AI doomsday conversation and people have been harking back and looking back on like the hubris of the technology. So it just felt very fresh and relevant right now. It's perfect, uh, perfect time to rewatch it. It does feel like it has that relevance now then. I don't want to say like more than before because we don't necessarily have the same fear like on an every day-to-day basis. Like you talk to people from that time, like we feared the possibility of dying like at any moment we don't have the fear at all which is why it's um why it's funny like uh you know i i know we're not trying to jump right into the comparison with oppenheimer but we're talking about the kind of contemporaneity oppenheimer seems very sure about technology and not concerned and there's like this warship of engineering and technology whereas this is making fun of it at every turn and like the amount of time safety is on the screen and this surety and over-engineered thing is just brutally sat- satirized in this where i feel like it's worshipped in oppenheimer so it shows we as a culture are not like as worried about the bomb anymore and as worried about technology and this great power that is capable of destroying us. Yeah. I mean, I watched it when I was probably in high school or whatever the equivalent of British high school is. Um, And I think I watched it with some friends and it was like the fourth Kubrick film we watched in a row or it was in a a string of four. So it was like, you know, I I probably didn't take nearly as much in as I did. I watched it last week and then again today. Um, And 
Yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic film. It's like the second great film we've we've done this week um, for very well, maybe similar political reasons, but very different films. Um, yeah, and as a fan of Kubrick as well, obviously enjoyed it from that sense. And and it's interesting as a timepiece to you know, I I think you know I read some reviews and different things at the time, and I guess you know um, it was criticized for being like too pro pacifist and and different things but also that like pacifists who went to see it some like left in tears because it was treated as a joke rather like they felt it was too it was too it was treated too much as a joke you know this deterrence and and anti-nuclear stuff but um you know i i think that i could see how that 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 was taken that way but at the same time it is it is a pretty genius uh bit of satirical film terrifying and funny so I, I wrote this in my notes, like after today, I was thinking about this when I think about like, like the, what makes satire so good or like the best satire is that it is so true, like possibly true. And like, I think about like the onion. Now you see an onion headline or like, is this actually true? And then you see like a, a real headline or like, is this actually true too? Like, it's the point of like almost beyond satire, but this is like everything about it. And I, I like your comparison between this and Oppenheimer where, in that movie, they, they believed that they were doing this good thing and nothing could ever go wrong. And then they realized, you know, this is 20 ish years later and they realized everything could easily go wrong because people are inherently, I don't, not the word evil isn't the word I'm thinking of. They're just inherently flawed. Like you, you can make mistakes. You can have incorrect people. Uh, you can have, yeah, you know, but one of my one of the, the my favorite scenes is when they're in the war room and they're going through like all the reasons why they had like vetted everyone and they did studies and polls and everything and like they didn't they like they prepared for this possibility but they just thought it was so remote that it could never happen. Like everything is just. I, I think an interesting thing about that scene as well is like, and I don't know if you want to do it now or or later, but um, what Turgeson. He's like more concerned about the fact that like maybe his policy is going to get criticized than the fact that they're about to like annihilate the world. He's like, well, I don't want to, I don't want, what did he say? Something like, well, I don't think we can dismiss the, the policy quite yet. It's like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that, that scene is. Yeah, he says, uh, yeah, he says, uh, well, Mr. President, I would say that General Ripper has already invalidated that policy. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I mean, for for anyone who hasn't seen it or it's been a while, like, well, I can well, so obviously sketch out like the general, you know, the kind of like what sets this movie off is you first you have like, I feel like the opening scene where they just kind of have the planes flying and they have the like the voiceover is also kind of interesting. And they're talking about where this possible remote Russian island is, where this doomsday device is. And then they flip forward to, you know, sort of the mandrake and ripper kind of having a conversation where he's basically saying like the russians are there's not a drill we need to set in motion the possibility that we're going to bomb you know bomb russia because they've already attacked us and they realize that all of these controls and all these messes they have were literally left to one person who could just make a decision on his own and there was no controls you know you think about now where like the president supposedly has the only the right to uh you know authorize war but does he really like you can a group of military people can just do what they want it's kind of a well what it help to just say like what the movie's about and like what's that would it be how to just like 
I assume people have just seen the movie. We're generally right in like everyone knows like the whole plot and the historical context. Yeah, to, to catch everyone up as far as it goes is it is the idea that uh, a rogue, you know, um, general, General Jack Ripper, which is also like the best name ever uh, for a movie and the guy who's like the rogue general basically f- believes and that we need to go to war and uh, start and bomb Russia, bomb the Soviet Union. And it sets off a chain of events where, you know, everyone is trying to stop this. The Russians are brought into the, you know, uh, the, the war room to shoot down some of the planes. And there's just this constant, I don't know, tomfoolery and just uh, insane asinine scenes where they, the military attempts to take out their own generals so that they can, you know, regain control. And, uh, you know, we, we know where this eventually goes, you know, spoilers for anyone who wants to uh, go quickly watch the movie and come back, but you know, they can't stop the inevitable. Yeah. I mean, Jack Ripper is obviously intentional, right? <laughs> it's just J- Jack Ripper. Jack the Ripper. It's off. Like it's, uh, all the obvious, uh, hilarious names the whole time. Oh my God. Yeah. And I was saying this before, like the, as far as like the cast is concerned, there aren't that many people in this, but what's kind of great is that Peter Sellers, uh, plays multiple characters in the movie, which was actually part of the contract when Stanley Cooper came on board was that the studio basically told him that he has to play multiple characters. He was originally going to play four characters. He was also going to play the, um, the cowboy, you know, Slim um, Pickens character. What's his name? Yeah. Kong, Kong, yeah, Kong, Major Kong, King Kong is his nickname, I guess. But the, he decided he couldn't play kind of that that piece, so he's instead he just plays three other characters. But yeah, the the acting, everything about this, uh, you know, I mean, we can we can kind of start at the beginning of the movie, but it's quite uh, quite stunning how things kind of go off the rails very quickly. Do you think the opening? The- the opening card do you think they put that in as like a protection against any reprisals just just like in case the opening card said something like none of this is real this is all based on on you know this has never happened and these aren't real people and all this stuff and i just wondered if that was just like a kubrick being like all right i just need to protect myself a little bit here yeah he says the characters and incidents portrayed and the names used herein are fictitious and the similarity to the names history and characters of any person is entirely accidental and unintentional i don't know i I get the sense that it was just like it's very funny because four of the like the people you know four of the characters that are you know like sellers is uh, dr strangelove is modeled after you know a nazi so i feel like it's like both it's like a joke and then also yeah not a joke or something kind of like the whole film (laughs) apparently it was originally supposed to be a serious movie as well exactly yeah you you yeah that's a good point that the movie was uh initially meant to be more and that's how actually some of the people they brought on thought the movie was going to be a serious movie specifically i think george scott uh you know they he didn't realize this and then once they tell him it's a satire Kubrick apparently lied to him about different takes so they could get the most satirical hilarious versions and then oh oh, good I did not know that that makes oh my god yes and so he yes they apparently would take like three or four takes and the first one would be this like over the top version and he's like okay now do the regular version and he only used the over the top version (laughs) 
the it's funny that the opening card is almost like one more safety thing like the whole like the amount of times you see a switch that says safety get switched and yeah it's just like a, a million safeguards breaking down like the movie starts with a safeguard for kubrick it's like uh, so, so yeah, much of the comedy is like so heavy-handed it's it's just great i love the physical humor of it it's just like very very in your face the names are so like jack it's just really thick and uh and i really like that like it doesn't try to be too dry but it still is it's very subtle like one of the other things that's very not subtle it's like the opening scene after they you know show the title card and everything and they get to the uh the base that they're you know there's really only a few different locations that are you know scene locations throughout the movie but they refer to the uh the army there as the as peace is our profession which is like plastered everywhere and i just think that that's like again like the ultimate satirical thing saying like this military unit that literally is flying around the world at all times with nukes inside of them and their their peace is their profession i think it's that's why we build so many bonds is to stay safe right it's for a more peaceful world so maybe just like a quick treatment of the historical context of world war ii happened we invented like finally this technology people had been chasing uh the bomb the bigger bomb the h-bomb uh nuclear bombs became a technology as part of World War II, and we went from having zero bombs in 1945 to having over 25,000 about five years later. And the whole story when we're building them is we're making a safer world. We need to be safe. We need to create a deterrent. And if there's mutually assured destruction, if everyone knows everyone can kill everyone else, we'll have a more peaceful world became the kind of default state of how you know geopolitics is is and war is organized now and this is about mutually assured destruction not like everything going wrong and the reality of people is that we'll all kill each other and then paired with mccarthyism right like chasing down um the commies everywhere i know this podcast has a political bend yeah like isn't it gonna be a core topic here the commies and and fluoride in the water it's so good it's like that's probably viral right now on a message board on some all right what what's funny is this actually was based on an actual fringe theory by like a group at the time so like it wasn't actually it was actually something that people did believe that at that yeah that one still got around which just like the that besides how funny the name is ripper um he just reminded me of flynn general flynn like just just this crazy conspiracy theorist dude who's out there and then like when they start talking about the water all i could think of, of was like alex jones and the gay frogs and all that shit hundred percent hundred percent so it's so like it's felt so relevant it's like worship of technology is gonna get you killed uh conspiracy theories everywhere everyone's a communist <laughs> the sexual impurity part and like the evangelical religiosity strain that's also in our politics today like god it just all felt so incredible like we're in this hyperbolic version of exactly what he predicts there 
Yeah, you, it's hard to not to look at Stanley Kubrick and making this movie and predicting like the culture wars and the conspiracy QAnon and everything about it is is there. I mean, the only thing you would say maybe isn't the case or maybe that's kind of the satire is, like you said before, Pete, like we don't fear nuclear annihilation really at the, in the same way that people at this time felt. Instead, it's there's different kinds of fears more so like, you know, climate collapse and other, other pieces. You just kind of replace one thing for the other, but we're, the fear remains amongst most people. We're in this stage of technology worship. We, we haven't been scared recently enough. And so that's why like there's the content of Oppenheimer, but the tone of Oppenheimer is worshipful uh, again. Like they sort of, kind of do a little critique but not really they mostly just worship at the altar of these engineers creating death machines um which i thought was fascinating i did not expect to see that so so i felt so much more in tune with stanley cooper watching this movie and his view about um like the politics that seem the same today and uh and the like the risk being annihilation of life on earth yeah, I think uh, the it, one thing I noted when you because you mentioned the Oppenheimer. Obviously, we don't need to that that will be in a future episode. To anyone listening, will be we'll do an Oppenheimer. One. I feel bad one for thing it about following this act, <laughs> just like so excellent. Yeah, it's it's that movie. Well, I've really enjoyed Oppenheimer. It's definitely it's not for everyone. Whereas I feel like compared any, to this, like this is a real real movie. Yeah, but one of the, the one of the things I was thinking about in, or I, I noted down, was that sort of like we had developed the bomb at the time of like the 1940s to, you know, in quotation marks, beat the Nazis. But um, you could argue that they're aiming to actually, you know, beat the Soviets even more. And then part of the satire of this movie is that they then brought people over from Nazi Germany after the end of the war to help them develop the same technology to then, you know, beat again like in quotation marks so the soviets and it's sort of like this never-ending race of you know throughout the cold war which again is the we haven't even mentioned the, the cold war and you know specifically is that this is in the heat of the the heart of the cold war you have you know the the competition the space races you know heating up we're, we're just a couple of years out before stanley kubrick fakes the space landing which is a conspiracy theory so it, it, it's like it, it, there's so many pieces to like layers of the time. Like I can't even imagine what it would have been like to watch this movie at that time. Like to the point of if you didn't really know what it was going in, you didn't know what Stanley Kubrick was all about. He had only a few sort of less successful movies before it. I don't, I don't even I can't even imagine. I bet people didn't laugh so hard. This is, or, or maybe they did. I don't know. People love gallows humor, but it's fucking dark. And people were very, very, very scared on a daily basis. We're like training for possible, possible doomsday. Um, the making the United States, the sort of, um, where the Nazi project would pick back up was like there there was a piece of that that I hadn't recognized in past uh, in past feelings like and it's actually true like a lot of German yeah, Operation Paperclip a lot of German scientists came to America and they're foundational in 
and a lot of what became a lot of a lot of different kinds of um, you know uh, military industrial death machine stuff um, and uh, and maybe that's and I guess that's right like I guess America did pick up the torch in a lot of ways everyone agreed on if everyone else so Dr. Strangelove kind of orchestrates the whole thing right like isn't it kind of an implication um oh, that, that, he's, that, he, that this is like his plan from the beginning. on this like this uh nazi who wants to create a uh a special race um with about he just wants to fuck in a bunker for a 100 years and he executes his plan and gets like america to do it for him um like that's the plot right yeah i mean yeah that's sort of like it, it it comes out later but i feel like it's an undertone that yes they he he came to he kind of orchestrated the whole thing yeah that's true i mean it's sort of like implied but i guess it's not you know it's, it's almost like at that point you've you're like you're you're at this point you're like praying that they can stop the bomb at that point and then it's like okay well if we can't right? everyone and like, i love how everyone ends up agreeing like we can make this work and all the men circled around that being like yeah, Turgeson's pretty pumped when he's like 10 women to one man he's like yeah <laughs> that part's so good and everyone he's like i'm just i'm just spitballing yeah. here but you know we could just have a bunch of concubines it's all white yeah. people it, it was the one thing that sound. everyone in the war room agreed on they were like this sounds good no one was a skeptic <laughs> the president was into it and so funny evan you just said white people and i thought it was interesting um there's the part where they first get the notification the uh, Kong gets the notification that they have to do the bomb run, right? And he's like, he he makes a point of saying, "I think you're all in in line for a promotion, no matter your race, color, or creed." And it was like, I mean, I guess in the '60s you had to say that, right? Yeah, and they had and Jay, this was James James Earl Jones is there, and that's this is his first movie credit. And I think he's the only person of color in the film. He is the only person of color in the film, which I think is as we see what James Earl Jones becomes, it's uh, it's almost like a, a good person to have had in here, I guess. Well, and, and it's funny you mentioned some of the scenes on the plane with um, Kong. I feel like some of the scenes on the plane to me are honestly some of the funniest parts of the movie when they're like, when they break, when they break out their little sort of uh, packages, it has, you know, different things. And it has like, they specifically refer to the fact that it has condoms inside yeah. of the little, the little like care package and everything. It's all he very says, like, we could have a fun weekend in Vegas with this. Well, did you know that that he actually said Dallas, but it was released the same time that uh, the same week that uh, Kennedy was shot. So they changed Holy it. Shit. They yeah. dubbed over and wrote Vegas. That. Wow. That's deep fact. I, I noted. Yeah. And so I, I don't yeah. know if it's got any relevance, but like, do you think he, because, you know, obviously there's a stereotype of the Southern accent, right? Do you think he's like almost, I mean, he comes, he's quite, quite a Southern droll. Like he's basically sounds like a redneck. Do you think that was intentional? I know Sellers just didn't Sellers say he couldn't do the accent. He did say that. Yeah. He, like he's the cow. He's, he's the cowboy. He's, he's the American. Like he's this great uh, kind of like, yeah. Folk, almost like folk hero type. Right. And like, of for all the for all the criticism of America and like our like all the great satire like that was to me one of the most genuine characters and like he's like 
really good to his men and and it is like this inclusive thing of like it's like this hyperbolized too but it's like american meritocracy like you're all like heroes and you're going to be rewarded and recognized for it regardless of, of your background your ethnicity whatever um and like america actually being so good at stuff that like will be the ones to actually be able to achieve like yep we'll kill the whole world that's how good at killing we are <laughs> like buck getting so excited that his boy would be able to, to get through all the radar and be able to complete his mission like it's what's great about america and there's so much about the pilot that i think is actually great about america yeah i feel like the fact that it being like this texas you know uh southern like with like we're literally wearing his cowboy hat i feel like i mean i also think about too i mean we're we're not quite at the vietnam war yet but you think about the people who then serve in the vietnam war is a lot of people from the south that are you know drafted and they're forced to work uh forced to serve and i don't know I mean, I, it yeah that's like it's military str- caricature like yeah i felt like it was kind of you know almost pre predating that but in a way kind of showing that the major the, the the chunk of the people who are going to fight and die for america are going to be people from the south and you know uh predominantly lower lower uh you know wage Wage-wise. An interesting thing on that as well is Mandrake, who is the only British officer, is and, and as a British, the only like I can say he's super, super upper class. Like he's crazy posh, and I think yes. that is probably an American stereotype of what a British officer would sound like. Like the absolute top class of of Brit. Like most British people do not talk like that. <laughs> so it was just interesting that you know the one. Yeah, I mean, he he comes across as somewhat sensible in the film, but like he's also, you know, it's as if Americans can't see anybody who has a different accent, or maybe they don't realize that English people have other accents until they watch Peaky Blinders or something. Well, another example of the satire being like thick. Yeah. Well, what's what I think is funny about the Mandrake too is that they mentioned in passing that he's there as part of like a officer exchange program, which I, I assume that that's not a real thing. That can't possibly be a real thing. And I think assuming that it's not, I mean, you can correct me if that sounds ridiculous, but it is like so ridiculous that it's, you're like, Oh yeah, of course, of course there's this officer exchange program where we get a bunch of <laughs> British to come and like bring us their tea. <laughs> And teach us about uh, imperialism. I have a hard time placing him in the like, um, just kind of like, it, it, why is he British in there? And like, maybe I just don't know my Cold War history well enough to like say what UK's role in it was, or if he's supposed to be another like complexion of him. Yeah, like, is this all, what is it, Steve? You tell us. You, well, I mean, I think it, in the sense of. I mean, the, the, Britain would obviously be an ally to the U.S. during the Cold War, and were an ally to the U.S. during the Cold War. Well, that's our but special they, relationship, exactly. That goes. What did Bush say? It goes all the way, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. <laughs> yeah, but I think they also would have been, as Mandrake kind of portrays in the film, a little bit more sensible and a little. They would obviously. We didn't have the weapons that you had back then. I mean, we're still a nuclear power, but. Um, they would have been less inclined to go to war, definitely, and less in- inclined to just 
you know, I think by this point, Britain are learning that they're not the superpower they once were, and therefore they're they're taking that step back and and trying to be more of a probably trying to be a little more peaceful in the world. We also have to consider that at this time, like Europe is still recovering from World War II. Yeah. I mean, the, the, right. it was completely right. decimated. The U.S. was completely un, other than like the deaths of their soldiers. There was really no action. Yeah, in Hawaii. Yeah, like there, there was no real damage to the economy, to really anything. So they, you know, the Brits, the Brits, I, I would think at that time kind of had to, yeah. you know, suck up to America to kind of get aid and get all these things. So Perfect. I think it's almost okay. So that's mandrake, like kind of coming in to suck up to get, you know, we're here on an exchange program to, you know, learn from you and to teach you how to suppress and, and oppress people around the, around the world. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they, they've done that on a few continents already at this yeah, point. We're, we were pretty good. But that's the he. So UK plays the voice of reason that struggles to break in because it's kind of like powerless and um, but does ultimately almost save the day. Well, I guess like, since we're talking about some of the characters, we kind of gone through some of them. The other one that we talk about is Dr. Strangelove, too. But, but although he doesn't play as big of a role, I find his scenes some of the funniest it's president muffley who's also played by peter sellers i feel like all of his conversations on the phone especially are just so funny but just his whole thing yeah the fun, the fun. like his entire like being the sort of voice of reason in some sense like you're meant to think he's also a voice of reason but really he has no power or control at all over anything despite the fact that he's a president and i don't i don't know if that was meant to to be a like a jab at the office of the presidency by Stanley Kubrick of kind of saying, you know, the president really didn't have the power to authorize anything. He doesn't have any control. You have this giant room of, you know, of generals and everything, and they didn't have control. So what good is this like line of this chain of command is, I don't know. What, the, the, the president being kind of impotent, like reasonable, but impotent and impotent, yeah, that's a perfect uh, word for it. Is and like the different scenes that he plays no part and plays less and less of a role throughout the movie and just becomes an observer is so brilliant. Of course, it's on purpose. Um, and yeah, chain of command is just one more string of things that's supposed to happen and one giant safety mechanism that breaks and breaks and breaks again, right. Um, and the president's at the top of it. And this whole kind of scenario was a real thing that people all talked about. And this was an actual kind of flaw in the system at some point was that an individual rogue military person at a certain level could short circuit the chain of command. Um, just one more damage safety feature. Um, <laughs> right. That was another thing on the airplane is like they have all these measures to verify codes and First safety APR. and backup codes. <laughs> I I didn't notice uh the it's so funny that even in the last scene I thought I thought that he the pilot purposely rode the bomb and that they all knew the plane was gonna crash, but that's actually just one more additional like safety thing that went wrong. <laughs> that well, oh my god. What what I saw I saw uh, someone wrote on an article like there's a photo of that of him about to ride it and they kind of 
you know, give a caption to it, which I think is actually perfect being that he's like, you know, presumably Southern. I don't, he doesn't say, does he say what state he's from? Is he from Texas? Nah, he say? Say. No. So you could say somewhere from, you know, if I'm saying Texas, they refer to him as like riding the, like riding the horse of like the apocalypse, being like a horseman of the apocalypse. And I feel like that's such a great, uh, uh more like he's riding like a giant over engineered death cock that's meant to keep us <laughs> safe. And, rides it and it falls right on him he just like is a man killed by a giant death dildo it's so fucking funny and it is like it helped make the sexuality i had struggled with like wow the sexual overtones the whole movie i'm like how does this tie into the central themes and like just like man and his cock and just like and wanting to just fuck 10 women and this whole thing is just being like this giant onanistic thing and like man killed by his own power slash phallus is like it that's that's it that's life <laughs> i mean george carlin has like a you know, among his many amazing bits, he has one around the time of the Persian Gulf War being like, you know, war is like the most is like, you know, everything is shaped like a dick. You know, it's uh, everything about war is like sexualized, like men with inat- who are inadequate about, you know, things and have to go to war to uh, to solve their problems. And everything in this movie is dick shaped. It's amazing. It, it starts with two planes fucking. That's the first scene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was about to say, yeah. Yeah, there's that. And like, there's, well, there's his secretary, like, basically naked in bed at the store, probably as naked as you could be at this time in a film. And then there's like, when they open in the plane, when they open the hatch to the secret documents, like, there's just pictures from like magazines of, of women in bikinis. Like, you know, yeah, it's it's just everywhere, the sexuality. <laughs> And do you know what's actually funny about that? The person who plays uh, General um, Turgeon's uh, secretary mm-hmm. was on the cover of as the Playboy Playmate of that issue on the Playboy. I thought so. <laughs> I thought so. I swear I thought so. That's, yeah. That's- and her name is Miss Foreign Affairs. <laughs> it's the only woman in the movie she is. Yeah. <laughs> it's so fucking good. So they over-sexualize like the one woman in the movie <laughs> as like the ultimate male fantasy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Apparently uh, Stanley Kubrick, when he, when it came out, not, no one was like coming to him being like, Oh, I could see like the sexual, like, uh, you know, symbolism in this. And someone, I can't, can't find it now. Someone like sent him a letter or called him and said, Oh, I noticed this is all about sex. And he said, Oh, you're the first person to tell me that. I can't believe it. And maybe it's that people just kind of, weren't looking at that concept at the time because they're so infatuated with weapons and fear of nuclear, you know, annihilation that that's just not, that's just kind of implied or something. I don't know. Well, at the end of the day, maybe our shared goal is to just kill everyone else and just take a bunch of appealing women into a den and breed with them. <laughs> that's basically what he's suggesting about about the world. It's it's the worldview presented in this. There, I mean, we can talk about other 
hilarity scenes. Like one of my one of the funniest bits in this entire movie, in my opinion, among so many good bits, is when uh, Turgeson is in the you know the uh, the command center, and I wonder how many pieces of gum he puts into his yeah. mouth during this movie. <laughs> like it's got to be like 50, 60 pieces of gum, and I don't know why he's doing well, that. He, is it, isn't he smoking in his room? Yes. So I think it's because he can't smoke. And therefore, he's just like shoving because he wants a cigarette. So he's just shoving. I think that's maybe that that's what I took is like being implied. That makes sense. Yes. Like the oral fixation. He needs something. Okay. Then that makes a lot more sense. But it's just like the gag of it is just him. There's just like wrappers all around him. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. I can't square that one because there are 10 packs of gum in the survival kit, too. It's like one of the primary things. Yeah. It's like it's like gum was like gum just like really popular and at this time I don't know. I think it's an oral fixation joke. To your point, it is like everything yeah. is just like something in your mouth all the time. You know, we've talked about general sense of this movie, but one scene that I really want to even like read from the script and talk about because one thing as you know as being left to the projector, a lot of movies and themes often relate to capitalism and, and, and the, you know, things related to it. But one thing, the only scene in this movie that I felt like actually had a capitalist bend to it, you know, other than just the war and all of those things came from an article that I read. Uh, I'll put it in the show notes. It was called Dr. Strangelove in the Cold War Era. And it was actually written as an essay for NYU class. And he refers specifically to the scene when they're trying, when Mandrake is trying to make the phone call, which is also just comically amazing. He can't, can't get the change to make the phone call. He's desperate to make the phone call. And he tells, I don't know the, the character, the other sergeant, I guess I'll read from the script and it'll Guana say, or something. Guano. Guana. Yes. That's right. And he's, he's trying to get, ask him to give him coins. He's like, I don't have any money. And he sees the Coca Cola machine and he says, you know, and I'll just read from it. It says, uh, the Coca Cola machine, I want you to shoot the lock off it and maybe there's change there. And Guano says, that's private property. And Mandrake exasperated, says, Colonel, can you imagine what was, what was going to happen to you, your frame, your outlook, your way of life and everything when they learn that you have obstructed a telephone call to the president of the United States? Can you imagine? Shoot it off. Shoot with a gun. That's what the bullets are for, you twit. And then he says, okay, I'll get the money for you, but you don't get president of the United States on the phone. You know what's going to happen to you? What? You're going to have to answer to the Coca-Cola company. And <laughs> of all the product placements, at any of the moments, it is like the perfect encapsulation of one, the fact that they are, they fear a company more than they fear the reprisal of literally the president of the United States, which I would say is like a metaphor for the fact that corporations have greater power in America than, you know, the U.S. government or control over the U.S. government. And then just the fact that the, the U.S. can't even, they, they, the, the idea of like profit of, and, and money, like they can't even put money into something that might save lives. You know, you could look at that as a metaphor throughout, you know, American history, but I feel like it's very just. It's also interesting. And I may be just, you know, um, putting my own beliefs on another British person, but I thought the fact that a Brit was the one that said, like, do it, I think it's probably more, it was probably more conceivable to Kubrick. Um, to make the Brit not as concerned about private property like there, they had just yeah. in 64, they've just elected a labor government again. I think they're the, the British have always been viewed as, as more accepting of socialism than Americans. So I don't know if there's any, any truth behind that, but this is just kind of what I was thinking at the time. Yeah, that's, that's certainly possible. I mean, I, I, I think just having the British 
person do that. And, and I think you said, Steve, that the Coca-Cola actually to have this in there, they ended up funding a portion of the movie, you know, from this. And I think it's actually funny. I feel like today, I don't know that I could see a product placement be done this way where they would maybe allow that to happen. But at this time, I feel like product placement in movies wasn't exactly like a, a burgeoning industry of, you know, movies getting all these different, you know, a certain car and a certain, you know, uh, product and all these things. So I think it's, it's almost too perfect too, that there's a product placement for Coca-Cola, which I think also might play in. I'm just thinking of this now is kind of like the idea of the U S versus the Soviet union during the cold war, where there's the constant United States of saying that we have access to, you know, jeans and, you know, other products that they don't have in, you know, the Soviet union under socialism. So I know it was also maybe a dig at that. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause that's like the anti kind of the anti-capitalist message of the movie. Right. And then like, right at the end, there's kind of an anti, I mean, I don't know if it's actually anti-Soviet, but it's, it's certainly like goes to throughout the whole film. We've heard about like these, you know, like shifty, treacherous commies, like everybody makes comments. And then right at the end of the movie, the world's about to end. And what does the Soviet ambassador do? Takes pictures of the big board. <laughs> like, <laughs> what use is that going to be? The world's, the world's done, man. <laughs> like, I mean, the, the movie's a relentless mocking of the right. Like, I, the, the military people, they're kind of, um, you know, Buck has the the everyone believes in purity and this and that, but they're they're all hypocrites in various ways. And um, um, who is the other? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's just kind of endless. Um, he, the the through line with the Nazis is is brutal, and it's just suggesting that the entire military industrial complex is the pursuit of an ethno state and. Uh, um, it's uh, it's very very tough politically, and you know McCarthyism and hunting out and seeing commies everywhere is brutally mocked. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think its politics are really really clear. And um, which is interesting because from everything I read about Kubrick, he was basically a centrist. Yeah, everyone needs to get mocked. Yeah, no, just, no, no question. I love to see his satire on the left. Maybe it would make it to the show. I'm trying to think of his different movies. I, I don't think there was one. Yeah, and well, so you were talking about the uh, the like because you mentioned the Nazi uh, like that are brought over. Like, so just for anyone who doesn't know, like Operation Paperclip was one of the primary secret programs to bring over 1600. I think it's actually closer to 2000 German scientists, um, from a variety of different places. Primarily they're looking at things to build rockets and, you know, other areas, but they, you know, they, they knew what these people had done and they still invited them to America. And I think the whole scene with Dr. Strangelove, you know, like he can't walk and then he like gets up from his wheelchair and he's, you know, doing the Heil Hitler salute. Like it's, <laughs> and like, and no one is like even, bothered by it which i think is maybe even the funniest part well at that point they're all on the same page they're all like we're gonna go to the bunker it's gonna be sweet the first time he does that nazi salute he says like he's talking about something and he says he says something and tradition and as soon as he says tradition he just like throws up his nazi salute it's so that, that was pretty funny as well 
Of course, it would be the absolute vital that our government and military men be included to foster and impart the required principles of leadership and tradition. And he yeah. slams his yeah. fist on the ground and he does the salute and says, naturally, they would breed prodigiously. That would be much time and a little to do. But with the proper breeding techniques and the ratio of, say, 10 females to, to each male, we could get the well, the, the best line is the last line. He says, I guess that they could get their work uh, – sorry. I says, I would guess they then could get their work way back to the president – gross natural national product within say two years. <laughs> yeah. So like the fact that he's referring to the gross national product <laughs> yeah. in this same breath is like Well if they want to if they want to reproduce it's a good thing Ripper's not there because he at one point says like he says like he's like talking about how he chases women, but then he says like I deny them my essence. It's like the most fucking <laughs> ridiculous comment. Yeah. The, the fluid. Yeah. Yeah he he doesn't want he doesn't want it he doesn't uh yeah I just think the the again thinking back to like the the drinking water and everything is just so like, what, so that whole so okay so we've talked about sex in a, in a couple different ways what is that angle so it's like the the florida floridization the florida and the water we talked about that being like still an alex jones style conspiracy like the sex and then you're a prever and and all of that, like, I love how the new sergeant picks up where the other one left off. Like, he also thinks that he's unpure, he's a pervert. The and it, like the politics today of, uh, like, the sexual demonization of the other that happens in, like, right-wing politics a lot. It's, it's interesting. I, I can't quite make sense of that in the movie. It almost only makes sense when I think about the current thing and all, like, just the weird ways people on the right tend to use sexuality as like a, a cudgel. I was thinking about the water too. They also use that bit too. I mean, obviously they're saying that the communists are the ones doing this. And I think the line he refers to is like, Oh, have you ever seen a commie drink a glass of water? And he's like, no, <laughs> yeah. they only drink vodka. Yeah. And it's like, of course, like that's cause they, they, if they drink the water, they would be, it says, uh, as human beings, you and I need fresh, pure water to replenish our precious bodily fluids. Like, and he says he only drinks distilled water, rainwater, or pure grain alcohol, which is just. <laughs> that guy's a good American. It's, <laughs> I, I, I don't know what to make of that other than the fact that I think I said before is that it actually was like a conspiracy theory at the time. So I guess they needed to, the only way that this, that Jack Ripper could be this crazy as if he was a conspiracy theory nut, right? Like he wouldn't, he couldn't, the, the, the regular normal good person that's in the military would never reach this point as kind of, uh, we see later when they're talking about, you know, all the studies they did and to make sure this wouldn't happen and contingencies. So like the only way that this could happen is you have to have like a loose screw or this crazy person which i think really is not true and it's someone who never comes that's the person who breaks the like who breaks the world is the guy who doesn't nut right yeah that's true <laughs> yeah i got you, I got you. The, oh my god okay i think it's coming together for me now okay but like yeah so it's the crazy conspiracy theory guy that that starts it all but like turgeson falls in line pretty quick and he's just like come on we can spare 20 million people. That's okay for 20. That's an acceptable amount of American lives to lose 20 million. As long as we completely destroy the Soviet union. Yeah. Like the classic military man as the, like 
he's just very innocent and dumb and wandering into it and he just wants his ass and he loves weapons and he loves america like bucks bucks a great character i think an accurate representation of a large swath of america and like kind of military military culture and i think that's also the fact that he says steve that he you know ends up saying like oh there's a you know there's a acceptable amount of like lives that can be lost i think that's yes yeah, 20 million yeah right i don't think that that's even a conversation that's even completely unrealistic no it, for no, military no, leaders in fact they'd be like oh well there are plans you know, that look like this yeah exactly it's just this is just the moment that i thought of this that i think is funny is that the military wouldn't let for good reason, I guess, let Kubrick see the inside of those B-52 bombers. So they based the entire like design based on pictures and things that were like from, I think Boeing, cause they are the ones who built the planes. They were able to get like pictures. And so everything was designed completely kind of made up in a sense. They just, hmm. they, they couldn't get inside of it. A useless trivia fact for everyone. Well, I like, I, I love the custom design, uh, a hundred, hundred safety switches in a row again and again i uh i gotta say not not much has changed um we still live in a paradigm where we tell ourselves that we're rational actors and that our ability to all kill each other keeps us safe that's still the prevailing thing that kind of governs how we interact or rushes at war now and they're not using nuclear weapons and i don't know that that's still the world we live in but a series of blunders and just humans being humans could lead to nuclear war at any time. So, well, we have the uh, the doomsday clock. You can go to the website and see the you know the. I think we're at ninety seconds to midnight according to the doomsday clock of you know the. I don't remember who built it, but you know the idea of how close we are as a civilization, and I don't know how it's changed. I'm sure you could look it up, but. I mean, it is true. Like most people don't fear nuclear annihilation, but, the, but I will say, I, I guess I have to say it, cl- clarify. Do you think that if you live abroad, you know, not necessarily in like a Western ally or U.S. Western ally, you know, you live in uh, another, you know, uh, the global South somewhere. I feel like if you were to ask them if they fear the potential of being killed by, bombs or the united states i think that they're they probably would say they do i feel like it's kind of an american and western feeling that we feel safer within our construct than they might yeah and it doesn't necessarily have to be bombs either right i mean right. climate climate change anything like the, well obviously imperialism has has decimated the global south but um you know, climate change is going to make a lot of these places unlivable. So, I mean, I, I think they live in a constant state of fear compared to how comfortable we are. Yeah, and by we, I mean also, I would, you know, add yeah, the, the West. The, the, the yeah. West, yeah, you know, England, uh, the you Western, know, well, Europe. Western Europe and such. Yeah. The, doomsday, the doomsday machine kills all life on Earth. Yeah, and I think Evan and I talked about this before, but um, so the Doctor Strange Love was you know, based on a, would you say like four Nazi scientists that I brought over? Yes. That's what the, the, yes, one, that's right. One in particular was, a, his name was Khan K A A H N. And there was, I read a review of this film by a Hungarian communist and he claimed that the U S paid this con a million dollars to 
build a doomsday device. Now that necessary, there's no proof that that's true, but there is a quote by him where he said, if you gave me 10 billion, I could have a doomsday. Oh, I think it was 10 billion or some ridiculous number, but I could have a doomsday weapon for you in 10 years. So it was something that like, and he wrote a book on, I think you mentioned it as well, having thermonuclear war. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, from for as satirical as this is from everything i read like it is also pretty realistic the 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 situations and <clears throat> how things would happen extremely like i think that's why the comedy needs to be so heavy-handed is because like they're yeah. playing out a real fucking thing all they need to do is cut it a little differently and it would be a serious movie yeah yeah the this the, this article i think i i mentioned too before that kind of detailed that coca-cola scene because we we, are, we kind of already talked about the mad aspect of it too but one of the the pieces in here i don't necessarily read exactly but they're talking about the you know mutually assured destruction and you know the the i'll just quote for it, it makes it more sense so he says the crux of the humor in the film comes from the fact that deterrence is executed incorrectly as a soviet leader has a doomsday machine that triggers when the Americans attack and it was not yet announced to the world. So the whole point of deterrence is lost. It's a necessary communication is not in place and consequently does not induce the fear to attack in the enemy. So again, at the time, most of, you know, during the cold war, there, there's often typically announcements and, you know, very public statements of, you know, we can now do this and we can now do that because it almost, you almost needed that uh, competition to make it clear that, okay, well, they now have this device. So we have this device and you have this device and we have this device. So the idea that you know this, but when it's not known, like in this movie, the doomsday device is secret, you know, I think is what creates the, you know, that, that fear. Yeah. And there's a funny part of American exceptionalism when they're talking about that doomsday thing, when Turgeson laughs and he's like, commies couldn't do that. We could do it, but they couldn't do it. That's actually very present in the movie uh, Oppenheimer when they're kind of building and, you know, they're obviously competing, trying to build something before the Nazis do. And they kind of dismiss the possibility that the Russians might be building it, except for the fact that they believe that, you know, there's moles from, from there, you know, stealing technology to go back, which, I'm sure on both sides there was uh, the stealing of of information, but I think the, the, America always believes that you know only they can do this, and when they have that technology, only they can do it correctly and use it properly. And so there's that definitely uh, sense of uh, hubris. Yeah, I feel like uh, it's pointing at the fragility, though, too, right? Like the constant worry there's going to be a doomsday gap and. Um, they're constantly worried about uh, about the competition. Yeah, and then at the at the end, he he goes, "We do not want a mind shaft gap." <laughs> so good. Uh, oh, it's crazy yeah, that, that like this is l- literally this is still this is still where we are. Um, it it's actually transpired too. Like, God, it's held on for a long time, but I guess in. In um in the grand scheme of things, it hasn't been very long since the nuclear weapon was invented. But um I guess seeing Russia struggle in a mainland in a land war with its neighbor and not using a nuclear weapon, knock on wood, is um is a sign that like the mutual mutually assured destruction paradigm continues to prevent nuclear war. 
in, 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 in some sense too, you could look at, you know, the DPRK, North Korea and other places, you know, Iran too. I think whether or not we know exactly what technology they have capable, I think part of the reason maybe some of the reason that the United, the United States, if they so chose, could nuke those places and, uh, you know, prevent them from, from doing it for many decades. But the fear of them having something probably also prevents, deters the United States as well, right? Because, and vice versa, like what, what would be to gain if you are one of those countries as like Bush called them, what, like rogue nations, or I don't remember the term they coined for it, but, they have no incentive to do that. The ability to take the world hostage, being a nuclear power is extremely valuable. Right. I mean, so like there's no, there will be no incentive for one of those places to, you know, shoot a intercontinental ballistic missile somewhere because instantly their country is destroyed. So it yeah, does and, have, and yeah. The other, has, side of the, the other side of the coin of that is like, they need those weapons as protection for themselves to deter America from doing it, right? Right, exactly. Exactly. To be a player at the table, you need a nuke. And I don't think we're anywhere near or will ever get to a point where everybody just gets rid of their nukes. So No, and even if the US even if the US agreed to it, you know, they'd still have some. They'd be like, Yep, yeah. uh, their their fingers are crossed behind their back, being like, Yep, yeah, we got rid of them. It's amazing how strong like, we had a really good nuclear agreement with Iran. It's this way off topic, but God. That was one of that was so fucking dumb. <laughs> John Kerry is a solid statesman. That was his best achievement in his entire career. And then they just stumbled in like a bunch of fucking buck turgesins and fucked it all up. Uh, anyway, another nuclear power to come. Oh, th- this is I just this just was in my notes. I just remember it being a good line. I think it's when they're inside the the war room. I think. They say that war was too important to be left to the generals. And then, you know, now I would say like politicians. And I think it's kind of apt because, you know, you think of the only time in the last 30 or 40 years we've ever had any resolution of war was after 9-11 with, you know, Iraq and Iran. And really, the president, I think, does have the power should they wish to use it, even though we, you know, it's like both – it's like the chicken or I don't know, not the chicken or the egg. It's sort of they have the power, but then they don't have the power kind of at the same time. And the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Cold War era were steering the whole country. Like, I, I don't think that's the case uh, today. You know, like, obviously, um, the military is incredibly powerful and the military industrial complex has just gotten more mature. But like, that was a unique moment of the fear of the doomsday gap was making it so like eisenhower was just like riding on top of his chiefs of staff yeah which is also part why uh you know if if we're going to say that kennedy was assassinated by you know the cia or pieces abroad which actually i just saw today some article came out that they found like another bullet that was in the car from a different gun to like lake add to the obvious thing that we know that uh he wasn't killed by uh, anyway, but getting oh, off topic. Wow, that is off topic. That's a but you no, know, but but the, the, my point was that during the time of you know when Kenny was president, is that he wanted to steer away. I mean, he wasn't. He was still in favor of having nukes and you know deterrence and all these things, but he wanted to to draw down some of the things that 
the uh, military industrial complex did not want to draw down and created enemies in the process. So, you know, I think you're right that the the strength of those other parts of the military. He's a prever. We know that. Uh, he definitely didn't have pure body, bodily fluids. He releases essence. I mean, JFK definitely needed to go. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk about everything in these terms. Unlike the military leaders, yeah. on military leaders leading, I mean, there's a, I think there's probably a large portion of America that, that really wouldn't care if the military was in charge. And we're certainly not opposed to putting the military in charge in other countries. But Steve, it's the woke military. The, 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 right had oh, become, the right has become anti-military. Mark Milley is one of the joint chiefs, right? Like he, like he's a yeah. target. And he's red Lennon. Yeah, right. It's fucking bizarre. We are through the looking glass. I would love to see what Kubrick would put together about this day and age. I, I think I was talking with someone about this recently is that you don't really, the nature of film has so drastic. This is unrelated to the movie, but kind of in a, in a small way. Like you don't, the military movies and things that come out now are much different. Like we've had all of our World War II movies in Vietnam, anti Vietnam, pro Vietnam and all this. And that you don't see any kind of sat, either satire or even just war stories told nearly as often anymore. Like if people, I would get the sense that the, that most people don't care, you know, that they, they don't, this isn't a story they, they want or need anymore. Yeah. The war movie has been very out of style. I saw a good chart about this. The war movies are historically unpopular right now. Just been a little bit of an uptick recently. The, um, the historical war movies recently have been excellent. Um, there is, and there was also Dunkirk. Um, yeah, I was gonna say that's one of the few I can remember recently. 1917, didn't that come yeah. out? Yes. Yeah, yeah, um, no, w- would this film be successful now? I mean, I feel like if this film came out now, it would be an indie film that would be critically acclaimed and not a ton of people would go see it. Maybe I'm wrong, but it, you know, totally. most of the movies that are in the cinema now, like they're just huge blockbusters that have no real, there's not a lot behind them. And the, you know, the meaningful and interesting films tend to tip, like have small releases or just be some indie film that gets some word of mouth, probably gets nominated for an Oscar and makes its budget back. This is like only art house, like even smaller than like, big indie like this is way too fucking smart for today's like it's amazing how smart mainstream uh, entertainment was in that era yeah there's one oh. interesting thing like it, what's the the name of the base is like burlpison or something burpleson so i looked it up to see if it was a real thing and it's not and, and it, <laughs> but it it is a real thing in the transformers universe <laughs> oh my god <laughs> and i was and that just made me think of like you want to talk about product placement in a film, like watch one of those films. It's like oh, every scene is just everything. Oh, what's, what's the guy, uh, the, the, the guy, Michael Bay, like he is funded, like his entire film career is now funded by the military industrial complex and yeah. product. But the, <laughs> but the, like the thing about like being an art house movie, I think I wrote a note down. Tell me if you think this is wrong. I feel like this movie is one of the best movies that like film, I hate to use this word because it's stupid. Like that film snobs really like, but like the average public probably still doesn't know or still doesn't, hasn't seen somehow. Maybe I'm going to alienate my audience big, when I say I this. I think it was big at the time. It was big at the time. Kubrick is always, uh, you know, 
major release films, it's certainly like a, a smoke club cigarettes movie at this point. But yeah, I yeah, I guess I, I guess I, I think know about what you it mean now. though. Yeah, because I mean, if you're not a fan of Kubrick, do a lot of people know about this movie? I mean, I've got friends that are pretty big, uh, you know, pretty into films, and I told them we were watching this, and they were like, "Oh, I've never seen that. What's that?" So that's absurd. Yeah. That's great. This is 101 to me. No one, I'm not going to call anyone a film buff who's never seen Dr. Strange a lot. I'm sorry. No. And I wouldn't call these people film buffs, but okay. they're people that enjoy, you know, watch a got lot it, of films. Got it, got it. Um, but I mean, like, yeah, if you look on any list of, of greatest movies ever, this is typically on that list. But I, but I know what you mean. I think I know what you mean, Evan. And I think, th- and I think the other side of that argument is that like people will put forth movies that are like, like if you want to call them film snobs or movie snobs aren't as approachable and aren't as watchable and aren't probably as entertaining as this right totally yeah and and whereas this like i i just feel like it, it's hard not to like this movie i agree it's really new watch yeah I, I as crazy as this sounds i feel like and i know people like this who like you know again like they say they love movies but if a movie is like an older movie especially pre Definitely pre like, you know, fifties, they're not going to watch it. But I feel like if this movie were a color film, you know, in kind of the same vein as I think most of the Kubrick movies after this, somehow I feel like it would be more popular. But at the same time, I feel like it would make the movie much worse. Like the way that it is in black and white, I feel like adds to the enjoyment for me. The audio is yeah. incredible. God, it, it's such a the soundtrack. James Earl Jones. Yeah. Uh, it's so funny that he's become this like vocal legend because that movie is basically like he's basically a voice in it. I, I love I love the music. Like when they every time they go to the B two fifty B the the bombers and they have like the dun the oh, so good so good. I feel that the black and white comment. I feel the same way a little bit about Raging Bull. Totally. Yeah, I feel like some people just get turned off and they're like a black and white movie. I don't need to watch this. And that's another classic. Because it's funny because next week I'm doing an episode for release during Halloween on the uh, the the Night of the Living Dead, which was shot in black and white. They've released it since then. They've colorized it. And I was going to say when I do it is I tried watching the colorized version just the other week. And it's just not the same movie. Like, it's one thing if the movie came out in color, okay. But, like, to change the essence of the movie like that, I think, is weird. And I think a lot of people are turned off by black and white film for whatever reason. It feels old. I mean, I had to drag my wife through anything with subtitles. Like, I know black and white I'm going to deal with. I'm going to have to push through some stuff. She fell asleep the first time. This time she was wrapped and she was laughing. So uh, it's not a indie movies. It does. It shows how impressionable it is. It's it's really fun for being like, yeah, people drop out of black and white movies in the first five minutes for sure. Like you said, see, I think some people who are really into Kubrick, and then I feel like there's also a contingent of people who think of Kubrick and think of the same, same kind of conversation as like uh, Lynch movies. Like, oh, these are just movies that are like too crazy and I can't understand them. And, and I, I understand that. I, I like watching movies that are just, you know, you can just kind of turn your brain off and you're watching, you know, a John Wick movie or whatever. But, you know, these movies like this, they make you think. And the fact that we're talking about it 60, you know, 60 years later, 80 years after the bomb was built, I think is a testament to it. Not bad. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I don't know. Do you guys have any last, uh, 
last comments about the movie or or anything before we <laughs> not it's funny the the 60 years does better than holds up i think it's just it felt so spot on for today's era right down to the the alex jones bits it was it's really fun to rewatch it thanks for giving me an excuse no i mean yeah I, i just it was it's really interesting i think you can take what you want out of it right you can you can look at it from a left perspective you can criticize like the american exceptionalism in it the the private property comments just the the, the total misconception of what the Soviet Union uh, was like. You know, the, the other scene I was going to mention about American exceptionalism is when they're talking about, like, can the flight, can the plane get through? And he's like, our, our guys can do anything. We we think the Soviets are, you know, we, we they have a lot of bluster, but they're not actually that that good. And he's like, he's like, no offense to the ambassador. He goes, I know you guys killed a lot of Nazis, but our boys are just like better than you. So, I mean, like. I think the American exceptionalism, uh, again, there are a lot of criticisms from the left, but I don't necessarily think this is like a, a strictly anti-capitalist film. It's just, uh, again, it, about deterrence and about how deterrence can go wrong and, and just about, you know, how you perceive yourself versus perceiving your, you know, whatever, perceived enemy. I said perceived too many times, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think, you know, for anyone who hasn't seen this in a long time or they kind of don't have much memory, I definitely would, would urge you to check it out. You can, I don't think it was streaming anywhere for free, but if you go to the uh, archive.org, you can actually watch it there for free. If you so choose, it's the quality isn't quite as good as maybe like, you know, buying it or something like that. But yeah, it's, uh, it's a top tier movie. I think it's, I, I would say it's maybe Stanley Kubrick's best film, although high marks. It's close. Uh, he, he has such great. I mean, I love The Shining, which I will also be coming out for anyone listening on Halloween time. Um, although I guess this movie is going to come out after Halloween, so scratch that. You've already listened to The Shining episode, yeah. uh, or if you haven't, you can go back and check it out. But other than that, I mean, I feel like not a top tier, not a strictly anti-capitalist movie, but still suggesting that the Fourth Reich is the American military military industrial yes. state. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. It's funny. Uh, recently, I, I don't remember what movie it was. I was doing, and someone commented on YouTube the video saying like, "Oh, the movie I was talking about wasn't like a like leftist movie." And like, I don't necessarily, in my view of this podcast, as the uh, the creator, I suppose it's like, doesn't have to necessarily be the movie is, I don't think, as you said, Steve, this isn't an anti-capitalist leftist in quotation mark movie. It's a movie that could be viewed from either side and critiqued in different ways as you, as you put it. So I think from the left of the projector, exactly. Yeah. Well, we, we can, well, I'm going to, I'm going to use that as my promo now. So you've, uh, you don't, you don't get any paycheck. Steve, you've been on a few of these. Uh, yeah, this is the third, I think. Cool. What's your podcast about? Uh, imperialism. <laughs> oh, cool. Ours is more of a history podcast. Cool. Yeah. So I asked, so it's not the perfect, so Pete, you took my, you took my spot. I was going to ask, uh, oh, sorry. Steve to tell everyone about his, no, it's good. It's good. Do your plug. Do your it's plug. Fine. Yeah. So yeah, just if anybody isn't listening already, uh, please listen to the intervention podcast on Spotify. I don't do any social media, but my comrades on the podcast do it the intervention pod on instagram so please give us a follow yeah and you'll be you'll be hearing me on an upcoming episode about uh the grapes of wrath uh and the uh the new deal era actually once again that's probably going to come out before you hear this so go back subscribe to the intervention podcast 
give it five stars on Spotify. Like follow the tweet. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, and Pete, uh, you don't have a podcast, but that's okay. You're still allowed to. Be <laughs> you're like the one. You're you're the one white dude left. Yeah, dude. I'm really, yeah. What, what are you waiting for? I don't know. I'm trim- I'm just being silenced. Cancel culture just got me down. Yeah, you you, you, you can <laughs> you can have a Stanley Whoa, Kubrick hey. podcast. Um, uh, only only white male directors on my podcast. Uh, it's canceled now. Sorry. Actually, yeah, it actually would be a perfect name for the podcast, the the canceled podcast. That's how you know someone's going to be like just saying a ton of shit you could only say in America. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's true. Uh, but yeah, so you all can uh, also subscribe and follow this podcast on same place as Instagram, um, YouTube. Uh, we stream all these episodes live and you can check out all the back catalog, you know, rate this, subscribe, do all the internet things. And uh, we will catch you next time. See ya. Thank you.